Welcome to the Whistleblower Newsroom. I'm Christina Borgeson. It's undeniable that as pharmaceutical products go, COVID injections are among the, if not the most dangerous products that the pharmaceutical industry has ever unleashed upon the public. And it is undeniable that even though these vaccines have long met the FDA's threshold as too dangerous for public consumption, the FDA has not pulled them off the market. A recent vaccine adverse event reporting system report, albeit grossly underrepresenting the true figures in all categories, nonetheless paints a grim picture of vaccine deaths and injuries. Out of a total of 1,261,147 reports, there were 27,968 deaths, 51,996 people permanently disabled, 40,328 cases of myocarditis, pericarditis, 14,326 heart attacks, and 15,642 cases of Bell's palsy. The list goes on, but the point is made. Meanwhile, who is taking care of the daily growing numbers of vaccine injured and how can they be helped? My returning guest today, Dr. Syed Haider, is among a much too small number of physicians successfully addressing the often severe problems of the vaccine injured and those suffering from long COVID. Dr. Hader is board certified in internal medicine with additional training in functional medicine, which is a holistic approach to treating chronic diseases. He is also trained in alternative and Chinese medicine and has extensive experience working in hospitals, clinics, communities, and online. He's here today to talk about COVID vaccine injuries and his approaches to treating them. Welcome, Dr. Hader. Hey, thanks for having me again. You're one of few doctors treating adverse reactions, it seems. Um, I've been going to this website called Real Not Rare, where they describe adverse events and, God, people are really suffering. And I've noticed that a lot of them say that the minute their doctor hears that or thinks that it might be an adverse event, they just they just do not want to handle it. What's more common is that the link is never made by the patient or the doctor. That's actually probably the most common thing that I see is that patients will go for months and maybe over a year um, with strange new symptoms and they'll get, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of testing done. Um, obviously, the insurance companies usually pay for that and they won't find anything, you know, and the doctor will just say, you know, they'll think, you know, that it's all in their head. You know, that's kind of the thing that doctors tend to think when they can't find anything with the testing that they have at their disposal. And this is a really unfortunate, you know, thing about modern medicine is that if you can't, you know, diagnose it, you just think, oh, this must be like psychosomatic. You know, they must be, they're not like, they're not thinking the patient's making it up literally, but they're thinking that it's something psychological, right? And, and so a lot of patients come to me. I mean, I just saw a patient yesterday who said that they, they themselves didn't make the connection. They got two doses of Moderna. And I think it took at least a year before they went, maybe eight months or something before they got the booster. And then they got way worse after the booster. And then finally they made the connection. They were like, this has to be the shot. A significant percentage of the people who come to me were very high functioning, okay, before they got the shots. In this particular case, this 
middle-aged man was had started multiple companies, very successful entrepreneur. He was a CEO of a company, right? When he got these shots, um, he was like a competitive racing bike, bicyclist, okay? Um, so in, in excellent shape with an excellent diet, right? Like he was telling me, I, I would eat as clean as possible to keep up with like 20 year olds, right? Um, he's in his fifties. And so um, doing everything right. Okay. And, and very sharp, you know, a very sharp guy. And when he comes to me after, you know, having, it's been more than a year now, and this is after the booster. Um, he's like, I'm, I'm like mentally at 20% of my capacity. And I had to take a leave of absence from work. And I'm, um, and the, the issue is, you know, severe fatigue, severe brain fog, um, severe insomnia after the booster, he wasn't able to sleep literally for one week. Okay, until they gave him really strong sleep aids to just knock him out. If he just walks, his heart rate doubles. You know, his heart rate used to be a baseline of like 40 or 50 because he was in such good shape. After the shots, it, the baseline went up to 70. So 70 is a good heart rate for most people. But for him, it was a huge increase, right? I mean, it was very unusual to be, <laughs> instead yeah, of 40. Yeah, they have near, like 50, I was going to say 50. Yeah, 40, forty 40s, right? He was in his 40s. So it was nearly a doubling of his baseline heart rate. Um, so for, for a lot of people, it might have been like above 100 because their baseline would have been above 60. It would have been like 70, 80. And so anyway, it was a major increase. But but then it doubles from there if he just walks, right? If he just does any activity, it'll double again to, you know, the, the low hundreds, Um or maybe even the mid hundreds, like 150, he tells me that if he just is walking. And, um, and, and a number of other um, just very, um, you know, inconvenient and disabling symptoms, you know, anxiety and depression, he never had any psychological issues ever in his whole life, right? Um, and so some of that might be physical, you know, just because of fatigue and not able to sleep and, you know, not able to exercise anymore, right? Like you tell, and the thing that I hear from a lot of them is that my go-to thing for stress was always exercise. And now if he exercises, he actually feels worse, far worse, but it's hard to break that habit because you're just like so deeply ingrained with this idea that exercise is good and exercise makes me feel good. But the, the thing that with, with vaccine injuries and also long COVID, they're both very similar. It, it triggers inflammation, which is normal. Like exercise always causes inflammation, but then the inflammation has an endpoint. It stops and then the body rebuilds better, right? That's the way it normally happens. But with long COVID and the vax injuries, it just goes out of control. It, go, it runs amok and it never stops. And so sometimes they'll feel better that day, um, but in most cases, they actually don't feel better at all ever. But even if they feel better the same day or with, you know, a few hours after the exercise, the next day they feel wiped out, horrible, and it'll go on for like weeks. And so it, it's always a setback. And it's always something that you unfortunately have to tell them you can't do it for now. You have to stop. Um, and the other strange thing is that a lot of the healthy dietary habits people have, you know, they've been told you should eat fish, right? Twice a week, you know, fatty fish, you should um, eat maybe fermented vegetables, right? Like sauerkraut is one of these things, you know, trendy, and it's been considered a health food for a while now. Um, so with long COVID and vaccine injuries, there's a big component of histamine release and like an allergic, what, what some is, have termed MCAS or mast cell activation syndrome. And a lot of those healthy foods have a lot of histamine in them and they can worsen the symptoms. So the things that people are going towards to feel better and get better are oftentimes setting them back further. So you have to tell them, you know, don't eat 
a lot of fish, maybe don't eat fish at all, don't eat any anything canned, don't eat anything preserved, don't eat anything, you know, fermented, because all those things have histamine. Don't eat leftovers, don't eat um, even sometimes if the meat is really fresh, it might be okay. But if it's leftover, then it just builds up histamine. So you can look up lists of foods that are high in histamine and just minimize those. But then obviously you can add like, um, so fresh, you know, as long as it's fresh and then you avoid certain items like strawberries are really high in histamine, no matter what you do. And dairy, unfortunately, another one, right? That a lot of people consider healthy, also high in histamine. Um, so you just look, you have to look up a, um, a list of high histamine foods and minimize or avoid so those ones. Basically, then, it's like greenies and nuts for you after this. Um, even some nuts, unfortunately. So, so there are, it's not whole categories of all foods, but um, certain foods that you have to avoid. So yeah, so salads and, you know, fresh meat, you, you got to have it fresh um, is fine. Um, I don't have them all at the top of my head. I don't remember if eggs are one of them. I, I think they're not. So, so you just, you eat the things that you can um, and try to avoid as much as you can the things that might worsen it. But at the same time, you can add antihistamines, right? So they'll help minimize the, the histamine reaction. Um, so, so you give them this advice, you know, you gotta, you gotta take it easy on the exercise and try not to get your heart rate up because that seems to be the, the, the one factor that seems to trigger the worsening is cardio where the heart rate goes up. Um, and so, you know, th this guy who came to me to give back to him, um, like I said, he was basically utterly debilitated. He was, and also another thing that I commonly hear is this, um, if they try to do any focused work, especially on a computer, it makes them worse. So, so he was telling me that I'm trying to do a little bit of consulting work, but like, I just, the symptoms just flare up, you know, if I do, if I overdo it and it doesn't take much to overdo it. Right. Um, so people are stuck. A lot of them are stuck between a rock and a hard place. Right. I mean, it's like they, they, a lot of their, um, you know, work was a big part of their life, obviously, right? And it was very fulfilling as well. You know, it's just like the the exercise and the healthy diet. It was a you know a, a deep part of who they are, and part of you know how they dealt with things. And sometimes they can't do that either. So the, so you're you get a lot taken away from you. And and I think one of the messages I want to give people is that it's not this problem. You know, with COVID in or general and with, um, and I guess maybe even with vaccine injuries, people think, oh, you know, it's only going to affect people who are really sickly to begin with or very elderly or, you know, immunocompromised or something. And that's not the case. Um, it, it's not even the case with COVID. And it's certainly not the case with the injections. You know, it can hit anyone. Um, I've seen it hit children even, right, when they get injected. And I mean, there's death reports in children and everything, you know, including long COVID. I've seen also a terrible, you know, some terrible vaccine injuries at a 13-year-old and a 16-year-old, you know, and they both were unable to go to school, right, because they couldn't, same thing, you know, severe fatigue, brain fog, those are the kind of the top two symptoms that you hear reported. Some people have severe um, ringing in the ears or tinnitus, and, you know, one person came to me probably now six or seven months ago, towards the beginning, when, when people first started realizing that it was the vaccine causing their injuries and they started coming for help. And he had severe tinnitus to the point where he couldn't think, you know, he couldn't, he had trouble going to work because it was so loud. Um, and he had trouble sleeping because it was so loud, right? Um, like a roaring in the ears. I mean, he just could not fall asleep. It was so, um, you know, 
so difficult to, to deal with. And so he had heard a story of, and this was somebody who was semi-famous, um, who had started a, an entrepreneur who was the head of a company who killed themselves with the same symptoms after a shot, after the shot. Yeah. So he was getting really worried. He was like, am I gonna go crazy, you know, if this continues? Am I gonna drive, is it gonna drive me mad? Um, and maybe I'll get to that point, you know, where I can't handle it. And so he was quite worried. Um, he, he was not only distressed by the symptom, but also after hearing that story. Um, and with him, you know, to get to a little bit of treatment, I mean, he, after just a few days of starting ivermectin alone, was 80% better. And then basically it was resolved, you know, he didn't even come back for, I think, a refill. Like he was basically done after a very short time. And that's often my experience that you get, most of these patients get significantly better very fast if they get the right treatment, which is, I mean, it's usually ivermectin or a steroid, sometimes fluvoxamine. Um, there's a number of different things that we can try. What's going on in their bodies that is causing the brain fog and the fatigue and so on? So there's a number of things that we think are going on. So different people have different ideas. Some people think it's just an allergic reaction basically to spike protein. And, and so that would be the MCAS theory or the mast cell activation syndrome theory. Um, Bruce Patterson's group at IncelDX, you can find them at covidlonghaulers.com. They, they've developed testing and uh, a panel of tests, immune markers called the IncelKine panel that you can request from them. And um, they've run it through like a kind of an artificial intelligence algorithm to kind of try to figure out, okay, all the people who took this test who are reporting these typical symptoms of long COVID or vaccine injury, what does their, what's similar amongst all their panels, right? So, you know, machine learning was used to figure that out. And so they can give you kind of like a, a score, a long hauler score or index or, you know, vaccine injury score. Um, and if you're above, I think 0.7 or something then it's considered positive. And so, very typically, you'll see elevations of certain things, things like interleukin-6, um, which is one of the markers of severity in the acute phase of COVID also. Um, and so, so these are all directly linked to spike protein toxicity, basically. So interleukin-6, SCD40L is a vascular inflammatory marker. Um, there are, there's a number of them. And so their theory is that it's the, the S1 subunit of the spike protein. And why they think that is because they've actually found it. And basically everyone who came to them with these symptoms after a shot or after COVID, um, persistent symptoms. And, and it's, it's held inside the monocytes. So atypical form of monocytes, it's an atypical monocyte, which is just an immune cell in your body, is holding on to this S1 subunit of the spike protein. So normally your body should get rid of this. It's just junk protein, you don't need it, right? But for some reason, these monocytes have um, kind of gotten friendly with it and they just, uh, they, they, are now kind of creating inflammation in your body, right? And so they're triggering all these different inflammatory chemicals or cytokines as we call them. Um, and those have, you know, negative effects. Like they cause this, what we think is we cause that they, they cause the disease itself. And so if you, so, so the approach is that these medications that we're prescribing lower those inflammatory markers. And, and by the ivermectin, the ivermectin yeah. and yeah. the fluvoxamine, and they all have specific anti-inflammatory effects that are targeted towards the specific kinds of inflammation and the specific chemicals that are raised by the S1 subunit of the spike protein. And, um, and so, so, 
so we'll give specific, all these medications and we'll see that the, you'll repeat the test after you know, every four to six weeks and you'll see the markers going down. And sometimes your symptoms will improve before the markers go down. Sometimes they'll improve after the markers go down. But basically once you get all the markers down near normal, most people will be you know, far better, right? And then once the symptoms are essentially gone, if you recheck them for that S1 subunit and the spike protein, it'll generally be gone. It won't be there anymore. So it seems, you know, quite convincing that that's that's the cause. There is a subset of people, a small subset, maybe five to ten percent, maybe fifteen percent, who have trouble clearing symptoms with this approach. Okay, and so <clears throat> another theory is that that subset, or maybe all patients, I don't know, um, have a chronic, ongoing COVID infection that we're not detecting. So it's hidden somewhere in the body, and there is a there's a cat model of this, basically. So in cats, there's something called feline enteric coronavirus. So what that means is that they have a chronic, they develop a chronic corona, and it's not specifically COVID-19, but a, another coronavirus. Um, when they get infected with that, that coronavirus, um, it, tend, it stays in their gut. So um, it develops into a chronic infection in their gut and causes a chronic disease. Um, and so it's possible that something similar is happening in human beings with COVID-19, but we haven't, you know, dissected somebody's gut. But how gut do you deal with that then? We've seen some people who tried everything and then they try a strong antiviral like Paxlovid, right? So Paxlovid from Pfizer is an antiviral. Um, Ivermectin is also an antiviral. So that but might Paxlovid, be- But Paxlovid, doesn't it only work like while you're taking it? It doesn't resolve the situation? Well, That's what I've heard. I don't know. Paxlovid, um, there seems to be this rebound issue with Paxlovid where people get worse afterwards. I mean, we're not quite sure what that is about, but um, so if you have a chronic infection, right? Like Paxlovid has ritonavir, which is, it was a, which is an HIV drug. It's used for HIV as well. So HIV is also a chronic infection if you believe in HIV, right? Some people don't, um, I'm, I'm not 100% sure, but regardless, um, if you have a chronic viral infection, like Epstein-Barr virus is another one that a lot of people deal with, um, sometimes it's hard to wipe out, right? So sometimes you think, okay, well, the course is five days, let's take it for five days, you feel better, and then you feel worse again. And then if you have a test that you can run to show it, like if it's not, so if the viral infection is, you know, everywhere, right? If, if it's easily easy to test for, like you can easily test for Epstein-Barr virus. Um, but what if it's sequestered somewhere and it's kind of hiding and it's not like in your bloodstream, it's hard to find, right? Like I can't do a biopsy of your gut and look for COVID-19, chronic COVID-19 infection. So you're looking at secondary markers, right? Like does the person have persistent antibodies or something? And, and I mean, it's hard to distinguish, okay, is this a chronic infection or is it just history of an infection, right? You got infected and you got rid of the virus and I have immunity, you have antibodies to it. Um, so it's not a simple task to try to determine whether people have a chronic infection somewhere in their bodies or not. Um, and so that, even for that reason, a lot of people don't believe in chronic Epstein-Barr virus infections because you're not directly testing for the virus in many cases. You're testing for like a, an antibody. Like, so there's um, acute antibodies versus chronic antibodies. So there's these antibodies that we think are more associated with an acute Epstein-Barr virus infection, like IgM antibodies, and then IgG are more chronic antibodies. And so uh, some functional practitioners or alternative medicine doctors or integrative health practitioners, you go to them and you find, oh, your IgM antibodies are up for Epstein-Barr virus. That means that you must have a reactivation of, you know, and it's an acute, you know, episode. But then what do you do about it? 
it's a matter of taking antivirals, but for an extended period, right? You just have to extend the period of antiviral use. And for some people, it doesn't take much, but so, so like I was getting at earlier, people have tried Paxlovid and gotten better from long COVID when nothing else worked. And so that, and, and the only way I can imagine Paxlovid working is if you had an active infection because it, it's that's all it does it's just an antiviral it's a protease inhibitor that prevents the virus from multiplying by inhibiting an, an enzyme that it needs to multiply um or it's a placebo effect right i mean that's the only other thing there's two possibilities um which is why you need to study it right um at the same time there are you don't not everyone has to run out and get paxlovid i think you should start with ivermectin because it itself is it is also an antiviral, um, but it's also an anti-inflammatory. It has a lot of effects, right? So it also has protease inhibitor effects similar to Paxlovid, and it has antiviral effects. And and so most people, that's one of the reasons I think most people who take it do get better. Um, but you're always going to have outliers, right? And you might have to try something different. So you know, a lot of the people who go to Incel DX, they end up taking Ravrock because they've tried everything else and it didn't get them back to 100%. And Ravrock is also an HIV drug. It works in a different way. It inhibits um, the CCR5 receptor, which is also kind of an inflammatory marker. So it lowers that and um, it helps reset the, the monocytes to normal and helps them get rid of the spike protein. Um, but it has higher risk of side effects. So my approach with all these patients has always been, let's try the the easiest, simplest, safest thing first that a lot of people seem to get better with, which is ivermectin and, you know, vitamins and things and, you know, quercetin and zinc and, you know, all that stuff. And, um, and one thing I've added that, you know, people haven't been using in terms of the vitamins. So everyone knows about vitamin C, D, zinc, and quercetin. Um, but what I discovered, so I, I actually made my own and, you know, because I wanted to, to have the best quality for myself and my patients. And, and what I discovered when I was designing it was that quercetin isn't very well absorbed. It's very, very poorly absorbed, actually. And so in order to improve absorption, I added bromelain. And, and I didn't even know this when I added it. I just added it for that to, to, because it dramatically improves quercetin absorption. And you really need quercetin to get the zinc into the cells. And, and quercetin also, you know, surprisingly, I didn't know that either, has protease inhibitor effects, right? Like ivermectin and like Paxlovid. Um, but the thing I discovered about bromelain is it's it's an enzyme from um, from pineapples and it actually breaks down the spike protein. So very very yeah, very, it's I was oh like my what? Gosh. <laughs> yeah, amazing. Um, so so bromelain is in the supplement I made, and then I added K two and the. And the reason I added K2 is because I knew that when you're taking vitamin D for a long time, it improves calcium absorption. But then without K2, the calcium goes into hardening your arteries. It goes into the oh. wrong places. It goes to your kidneys and to your arteries instead of to your bones where it's supposed to go because K2 is very low in the American diet. It's, it's only found in things like this fermented soybean dish called natto that is eaten in Japan. It's found in grass-raised cattle, you know, dairy from grass-raised cattle, pasture-raised cattle. So like when I say pasture-raised, a lot of people hear pasteurized. It's not pasteurized. No, no. Okay? They eat it's grass. Gotta be, they have to eat grass, not grain, right. in order to get the K2 into their dairy. And, and you know, if you eat... The, if you eat that kind of dairy all the time, maybe you'll have okay K2 levels. But basically, most people in the U.S. don't get enough vitamin K2. And again, there's a difference between vitamin K and vitamin K2. So K is very high in green leafy vegetables. You, know, you can get that easily from the supermarket. But K2 is difficult to get. So, so I added K2 
to make sure the calcium went into the bone. So I added K2 to the supplement. And then, you know, I discovered after doing that, that K2 also acts in a way, one of the most important mechanisms that ivermectin has is to lower interleukin-6. And K2 also does that. So, so I think the supplement is, you know, supplements are fantastic and they're very important and they should be part of the protocol. Um, but you, And then you got to have it with food. That's another thing that no one tells you. So that also improves absorption. You know, D and K are fat soluble um, vitamins and they have to have some fat to be you know, absorbed, um, but also quercetin and bromelain. These things are normally found in foods, right? So you eat them normally in a food. So you got to have a food in order for all this stuff to be absorbed properly. So they should be had with food. Um, and so, so you take that, you take the um, ivermectin, and then if that's not working, you add a very low dose prednisone often works. And if there's neurological symptoms, you'll add fluvoxamine. And you go down the list of things, adding one at a time, um, you know, from most safe to to the things that have higher risk of side effects, right? Um, with and then you get to Mravrock, and then and then if you're still not better, you know, um, another thing lately that I've heard is that nicotine may help. So um, yeah, why <laughs> so, doesn't it constrict your vessels? Nicotine it, it has it has a lot of effects. Yeah, so so it may not help everyone. Um, so the nicotinic acid risk. So one thing that um, this has been. Um, spoken about recently by Dr. Brian Artis, who was warning people about remdesivir for a long time, you know, and I think correctly. Um, so he has a pretty controversial theory about snake venom being found in, you know, he thinks snake venom is in the vaccines um, or, oh, in the I water, heard, yeah, I or heard in the that. water supply. So, so a lot of, you know, top-notch scientists have just yeah, yeah. You know, killed this theory and been like, that's ridiculous. And, and a lot of the things he said were flat out wrong. Um, but he may be onto something. So there are, um, you know, like a lot of the things he said were blatantly incorrect, but um, there were some things that he pointed out which were correct and true. And so one of those things is there's two domains in the spike protein that are basically the same little protein segments that you'll find in a couple of different snake venoms, okay? And so this connection was made a long time ago and the researcher who was looking into this apparently was shot in his apartment, you know, kind of suspicious circumstances. Um, but anyway, I mean, people know this and there's these two little segments and those two little segments can activate nicotinic acid receptors in the body, in the brain. The same thing that's activated by nicotine and also N-acetylcysteine, NAC, um, can also help with this. So, so that's one reason some people might find benefit with that. But NAC. then what does that, what does that do exactly? Is, is it for the brain fog? What's it for? So it's for everything actually. Oh, so, really? so, so artists, you know, Dr. Artist told me I, so once I made this connection that maybe nicotine, you know, maybe stimulating those receptors will help knock off the spike protein. If the spike protein is stuck on those receptors and it's like, you know, interacting with them in some harmful way, maybe if we stick nicotine on them and get rid of, you know, dislodge the spike protein, then maybe that allows the spike protein to be removed. I don't, we like, we don't really know the mechanism here, but he said, okay, so, so the real reason he actually recommended it was because he found out that smokers were less affected by COVID, which is very un unusual, right? Yeah. It would be like, why would that be right? Like they have, like, shouldn't it, you know, they have bad lungs and shouldn't they be more hospitalized and shouldn't they? So apparently just, you know, at a population level, smoking seemed to be like a beneficial factor for COVID instead of a risk factor. Um, so that was strange. And so, 
anyone who saw that was like, well, it can't be like the smoke and the tar and that stuff, right? Like maybe it's the nicotine. So, so that's what he was thinking. So maybe there's something about nicotine that's protective or helpful. And maybe it's because it attaches to nicotinic acid receptors and maybe it has something to do with the spike protein having these domains that also attach to the nicotinic acid receptors um, in a negative way. So you can attach to two different molecules can attach to the same receptor, but have different effects depending on um, what they are. So um, so this was kind of the, the idea behind suggesting, hey, why don't some people try nicotine for vaccine injuries, long COVID? And so, so anyway, he, he started telling people because thousands of people get in touch with him every day asking him for help. And he said, well, if you've tried everything for long COVID, why don't you go out and buy some nicotine gum, try taking two milligrams twice a day and just let me know how you feel, right? So he said 500 people got back to him and said that, you know, we felt better within hours or days and and symptoms wow. that you wouldn't that you wouldn't normally link to nicotine. So I can understand if it helped lift brain fog, which it did for a lot of people uh, because it has a stimulatory effect. Um, right. But, but it also did things like, you know, one person had lost their hearing and their hearing came back. I mean, that's not nicotine. <laughs> Any connection that I can make to a normal like nicotine. But, um, and, and also another thing that I just can't explain would be that some people had low oxygen and shortness of breath and that got better. Another thing that um, somebody told me recently that worked apparently for every single um, patient who had either long COVID or vaccine injuries. And this was a rheumatologist. Um, he said that he had been using ozone therapy. And so like a lot of people think ozone therapy, you can only get it through like an IV and it's very expensive. But he said, no, you can get ozone as long as you any any route except for inhalation. You don't want to breathe it in because it's harmful in your lungs, but you can put it on topically. Um, I think you can ingest it. So you can use enemas. And so there, so he, what he recommends is an oil you can get, it's called pure PUR03. And they have like a whole range of ozonated oils. So they've pumped them full of ozone. And the more omega, strangely enough, the more omega-3 they have in them, the more amount of ozone you can get into them. So the whole, the range starts with like low omega-3 oils, which means they can only get a small amount of ozone into them all the way up to very, very high levels of ozone. With the omega, with the oils that have a lot of omega three, like hemp oil, um, and so he recommends starting slowly. You just put it on your body, basically, rub it on, and then your body will absorb the ozone. Into and what it. does it do? It's I guess it's an anti-inflammatory, an antioxidant. Um, but but he says again, he also says it helps with any symptom, whether it's breathing or anything. Just like it's like just helps, I guess, with the spike protein, helping your body get rid of the spike protein if if that's what the you know, the ultimate cause, root cause is, is the spike protein, or if it's a chronic infection, whatever it is, somehow it's helping people get over it. Um, so anytime you hear this, I mean, it's either a placebo or which has a strong effect, right? So I think people shouldn't like deride placebo effects as much as they do, because um, a lot of human illnesses, um, so the mind has a very powerful effect on the body. And, and so things like even cancers, a lot of severe chronic diseases in some percentage of people do spontaneously regress and go away, right? So we've seen this with cancer and it's something that's not reported very often, but a significant percentage of cancers, maybe as high as like 30% or more, spontaneously disappear in human beings, okay? Um, and so whether that's the placebo effect or 
or maybe it's an effect of like a placebo effect linked to prayer or something that they took that they thought might work or something they took even even thinking it wouldn't work sometimes the placebo effect has been shown to work even when you know it's a placebo it can work right so they did a study i think at harvard where they gave people like sugar pills and told them this is a sugar pill placebo Okay, it just has sugar in it. It's a placebo, um, and they got better. Or yeah, some well, the mind some is. Percent. I want to get back to um, treating these uh, COVID uh, adverse events. Mm -hmm. I I I pulled off this report. It's the all the VAERS uh, vaccine adverse event reports. It's a report from the beginning of COVID through up through May sixth, twenty twenty two, and 51,996 people permanently disabled, a uh, total of 1,261,147 reports. This is out of that many. It's 26. So I just want to jump in and say that, like, if it's VAERS, you have to multiply it by like 40 oh, yeah. at least, right? Oh, yeah, yeah so, I know. But so I, disabled would be 2 million. And so, yeah. Right. I, I know 40. it's very small, but here's what I want to talk about. Some of these, um, Bell's palsy. How do you deal with that? Explain what that is and how you deal with it. So that's a paralyzed facial nerve. So cranial nerve seven, um, it comes through your ear actually and comes out to your face and, you know, it uh, kind of spreads out in your face like this. And, you know, that nerve is what, um, you know, messages from your brain along that nerve or what help your, you know, your face move. Um, and so, Bell's palsy is has been found in people and oftentimes it's unexplained like you'll just randomly find somebody with like one side of their face drooping and you're not sure what happened and why. Um, but it's also linked to viral infections um, like herpes zoster or um, shingles can sometimes cause it. So it's and, an inflammatory response. I mean, I'm talking so about Bell's be, palsy caused by by yeah, yeah, COVID. Yeah, yeah. In terms of injections causing it, it's an inflammation. Like I said, probably most, if not all people who have a problem after the injection, they are having inflammation triggered by the spike protein. And for some people, for some reason, it targets certain areas and not others. Um, and, and the way I think of that is that everyone is kind of stronger in some areas and weaker in other areas in their yes. constitution and their genetic makeup and their physiology for whatever reason. Um, you know, the same insult might affect two people differently, right? So it's not like it's doing a different, it's not like a different problem. It's the same underlying problem, but it breaks the weak links in two different people in two different places because they have weak links in different places, right? So in some people it affects the cranial, you know, cranial nerves and especially the facial nerve for whatever reason. There's no coming back from that though, right? No, it does. It does get better. Yeah, it can get better. It's not, it's not that the nerve is dead. Um, so usually you know, any kind of uh, Bell's palsy can get better um, unless the nerve is literally dead. Like if you sever the nerve, um, you know, you're, you would have to reattach it. If, if the nerve um, got so compressed, for example, if it was inflamed or if there was something compressing it to the point, maybe, maybe if it, the blood supply was cut off, the nerve could die, right? So there, you know, if there's a blood clot in this blood supply going to that nerve, that would be one reason why it may not be able to come back because you may not have time to re to develop you know a workaround like so you know blood vessels can start 
building and going around the blockage and but it takes time to build those right collateral blood vessels um so so it's not that every case can get better but most cases will get better and can get better at this rear real not rare i went and pulled off some of the stories of these people and this 12 year old her name is maddie less than 12 hours after her second yeah. dose of pfizer she had severe abdominal pain, painful electric shocks on her spine and neck, swollen, ice cold hands and feet, chest pain, tachycardia, pins and needles in her feet that led to loss of feeling from her waist down, blood in her urine, vomiting, inability to swallow foods, dizziness, passing out, clots of blood. I mean, she had the whole enchilada. And now she has to get five feedings and four water boluses each day. Explain to me what happened here, but also explain to me if there was at any point that this girl could have been saved at all from so, her so current fate. Just saying that the, the root cause is inflammation from the spike protein doesn't tell the whole story because in a lot of people, the inflammatory insult from the spike protein can trigger widespread blood clotting. Right. And so that may be what happened in her. She may have like lost the use of certain things because, like I was saying before, with the facial nerve, you have a blood clot that's going to the supply of a major nerve. Right. Um, and you, you, the nerve could die because it doesn't get, it's kind of like a stroke, right? Like a peripheral stroke um, or a central stroke. Right. So, so we've seen children have strokes, heart attacks because the, because of the blood clotting that was triggered by the spike protein. And so when, when you get an injection, it's so much worse than getting infected, okay? So like kids have no problem with the virus, right? Because their surface immune system blocks it or kills it very quickly, right? And they have this super immunity that's just like a natural broad spectrum, not like specific for the coronavirus immunity, but like a, a general really strong immune system that works great against this coronavirus. And so it doesn't let it penetrate deep into the body. Whereas with the injection, you inject it into the deltoid where it was supposedly supposed to stay, but we always knew it wouldn't. Like there were the scientists who developed this, they knew they had the data from years before that the lipid nanoparticles they were injecting go everywhere. They don't stay in the muscle. They enter the bloodstream. They float around to every organ. So, so first of all, you know, the lipid nanoparticles have the mRNA in them and the mRNA is super strengthened. It's like a hardy form of mRNA. It's not a natural form of mRNA that you would find in your body or that's even in the virus, right? So they genetically bioengineered the mRNA to resist breakdown in our bodies. So, so that's really important to remember. And so this, the, the um, lipid nanoparticles take it everywhere to your ovaries, to your brain, to your heart, all over the place. And so then the lipid nanoparticles with their mRNA join with your cells in all these different places all over your body, even blood vessel cells, right? The cells in your blood vessel wall, some of them take wow. up the, the lipid nanoparticles and the mRNA. So the mRNA is just an instruction to all those cells everywhere all over your body, telling them make the spike protein. Once they make the spike protein, then they stick it to the surface of, of themselves. So they, they bring the spike protein out from inside them once they've made it and just stick it up uh, onto their surface, right? Like hair sticking out. Um, and then what that does is it triggers the immune system in the body to come and say like, okay, this is unusual. Let's create antibodies to it. First of all, the B cells in your immune system notice it and they're like, okay, we're gonna make antibodies to this thing. And the T cells come and they're like, well, this is a weird cell. We gotta kill it. It's not normal. So you, now you're having cells all over your body being destroyed 
okay? Um, and, and if they did stay around long enough to not be destroyed by the T cells, they would be destroyed by the antibodies anyway. The antibodies would come and attach to them once they're created, and that would be a signal to this T cell to destroy them. So, so one way or another, all these cells that have become spike protein factories are now going to be killed. Okay, so you're having your whole body under attack by itself. Getting back to the fact that the mRNA is, is, doesn't break down, we've found it now, I think, at like 60 days. And, and normal mRNA breaks down within hours. That's what they were telling us, that it's going to disappear within hours. It's not going to change any. It's not going to turn you into a spike protein factory. It's not going to. And so 60 days is like beyond the pale. I mean, it's unimaginable that an mRNA could stay around that long, aside from just it being a stronger version of mRNA, which is hard to believe. I mean, even, even like you, maybe a few weeks, right? But 60 days is like beyond imagining for an mRNA molecule, even with this artificial base pair in it. So the other possibility, which at this point seems to be the only thing that anyone can come up with to explain how an mRNA could be there after two months in your body, right? Um, is that it's, retro-integrating into a DNA molecule. So DNA molecules can go, can just float around in the cytoplasm of a cell. If you remember from biology that, you know, you've got a cell wall, it's like a big round thing. And then inside you have a tiny circle, which is the nucleus, but around that is the cytoplasm. And so you can have little um, circlets of DNA floating around in your cytoplasm, or you can have DNA that goes in and combines with your own body's DNA, which is in the nucleus. So either way, that would be an explanation for why this mRNA, so the mRNA may be translating itself into DNA. Um, and so if it's in the cytoplasm, it's not necessarily, it can stay around for months. If it's in the nuclear DNA, like the DNA that is our own DNA, the same enzymes that the DNA retroviruses use to turn their RNA into DNA and you know insert themselves into our genome in the nucleus, uh, similar um, enzymes are floating around in our cells naturally. And so, so the DNA retroviruses bring that enzyme with them. They have that enzyme inside them and they use it, right, to, to do that. But there are those enzymes floating around in our cells, which is why it's even possible for this mRNA to turn into DNA and possibly go into the nucleus, in which case it could be a lifelong thing. And if it goes into the germ cells, so what are germ cells in human beings? Those are your um, sperm and egg, right? Which combine to create a new human being. And so if the DNA in those cells, which is the DNA, you like the literal pieces of DNA that you pass on into a baby, if they get affected by this, if it retro integrates into those cells, which is a concern because it's going to the ovaries where the egg cells are, right? It's not really going to the, to, the testes where the sperm cells are, but it's going to the ovaries. So, and it's going to the ovaries of the fetus in the mother who's getting vaccinated during her pregnancy. So it passes through the placenta and it goes everywhere inside the fetus, just like it goes everywhere inside the mother, including the fetal ovaries and every single egg cell, you know, that, and that this is the difference between one of the differences between men and women is that, you know, all the egg cells of a woman are present at birth that she'll ever have in her entire life. Whereas sperm cells are created every day. Like there's new sperm cells made all the time in the testes. With the ovaries, you're born with all the egg cells you will ever make. Like you don't make new ones. You have them to begin with at birth. And so if you've introduced something into the woman's ovaries at any time, at any point in time that can change, you know, engineer or like, you know, genetically modify those egg cells, it is a lifelong thing. Okay. It will never be gone. And, and if you do that while they're pregnant, then you're affecting not only the mother, but also 
the next generation. Really interesting thing that I just heard from a um, OBGYN, and he wasn't really ready to disclose all the details, but he says he knows a sonographer. So you go for ultrasound, you know, fetal ultrasound in pregnancy. So he knows a sonographer who is able to tell which injection somebody took by looking at the placenta. Okay. And so, so the placenta is kind of the structure that attaches to the uterus yeah. and, you know, sends the blood supply to the fetus, you know, through the umbilical cord. Um, and so, so they can image the placenta, they can look at it on ultrasound. And, and I guess due to change, physical changes, structural changes in the placenta, they can tell if the lady was vaccinated, when they were vaccinated, and whether it was Pfizer or Moderna. Okay. Um, and so, she's not ready to come out and be public about it, but you know, he's encouraging her to like do a study or like teach other people how to do this because what that means is that it's physically changing the structure of the placenta and, and the pregnancy itself is deeply affected. And how could it happen? You know, in what way could it happen? I would say the most obvious way I can think of would be clotting of certain arteries, which is like damaging the placenta. It's not something that's affecting 100% of women in the same way, but there are certainly signals showing that people, you know, women are having uh, miscarriages, right, at a higher rate, it seems, from vaccination. Um, and whether or not they're able to have babies in the future, you know, I think some percentage of them may not be able to, and we don't have that data yet, right? So, um, you know, the vaccinations have just rolled out, right, in the last year. And so a lot of the people were already pregnant or are now just trying to get pregnant. And so we're going to start hearing from women, you know, and we'll have to see, we'll have to count up. You know, we don't have data, like, in real time for, like, number of people who are reporting that they are unable to get pregnant, right? That data is, like, a few years, there's a few years lag to have yeah, that. Yeah, but data. are they like, going to make the connection between the, the Well, we will. You know, a injection. lot of people will make the connection um, and other people won't. So we already have data coming from insurance companies showing a 40% rise in all-cause mortality in working age people between 18 and 65, right? Um, so we have that data and some people, and, and the reason we have that is because insurance companies kind of keep more up-to-date data, I guess, than federal government reporting systems, but data for like cancers and things like um, infertility, you know, held by the federal government coming in from all over the country, there's a lag of a few years before you have updated data. So if you're trying to find like, okay, what's the incidence of breast cancer in the US, you're going to find data from like 2018, 19, 20, not 2021, 2022 yet. Okay, so we don't know. We don't know so how bad it is yet. If you are a woman who took the vaccine, got pregnant, had had um, a miscarriage, okay, and then can't get pregnant again. Is there any test that you can do to find out if indeed you have spike proteins or whatever it is in your ovaries that is, that is uh, impeding your ability to conceive? Yeah, Again. so you can, you can, the only place I know of that does this um, is covidlonghaulers.com. And I'm not affiliated with them. I don't get like a kickback from them or anything, but they're just the only company that does this, right? I can't send you anywhere else. So they test for the S1 subunit of the spike protein and they'll tell you, do, your, do different forms of monocytes in your body, do they have this spike protein in them or this part of the spike protein in them still? And they'll also test for the inflammation that comes from it. So Unfortunately, this is just one of the ways that the injections affect people. The lipid nanoparticles also themselves 
have an inflammatory effect, right? And they are also everywhere that the spike protein is being produced. They've also ended up in those places. And we don't know, like, how long does it take to clear out lipid nanoparticles from your body? Do they ever clear out? You know, like, we don't really have good answers for that. Um, but those lipid nanoparticles are inflammatory and they've been known to be inflammatory for a long time. So you um, could and- go to the doctor after this and he'll do all kinds of blood tests and so on and so forth and everything will be just peachy you have to go for this specific test is that is that what you're saying that's there's only one test i know of yeah you go to covidlonghaulers.com ask them to run the spike protein test on you and the in the inflammatory panel if you want to know if there's the typical inflammation but there's no test for lipid nanoparticles right there, there's no one that can test you to see whether your body still has them and where they are. Um, so, so no one's going to be able to test specific organs like ovaries for you. A lot of these things are just going to be unknowns. And, you know, looking back at the last 30 years of incredible rises in the rates of every chronic disease, right? Autism, right? Yeah. So like all of this stuff has been covered up. Like what's caught, what's driving all the chronic disease? there's only a certain number of things that it can be, okay? It can only be environmental, right? Because we have the same genes, essentially, as our ancestors did, who had less chronic disease. So it's chemicals in our environment, right? And, you know, changes in lifestyle and chronic stress and all that stuff. Those are the only possibilities, our lifestyle. Well, you know, I mean, some people like Robert Kennedy, he's saying vaccines. Yeah, vaccines, because, you know, because things when that you, we're introducing. When you have your own natural immune system and you're constantly jacking it up or whatever you're changing it and you must be affecting its ability to handle i I think my my, my point is that it's going to be either it's going to be they throw up their hands like oh we can't explain it you know like there's been a rise in infertility and a rise in this and a rise in that or it's going to be blamed on covid as the you know it's just going to be like oh well that's covid you know that's long covid that's covid uh has nothing to do with vaccines um or it's just inexplicable right like like the rise in autism we can't figure out what's causing it, right? Um, instead of approaching it scientifically and saying, okay, well, what's changed? It's gotta be one of those things that's changed, whether it's vaccines or chemicals or, you know, our food or whatever, GMOs or, you know, cell phones or something has to Yeah, but that it, right? kind of testing is, is not... Uh... It's not acceptable to do, apparently. Yeah, it's unacceptable to ask certain questions now in science um, and in medicine. And and if you do ask them and get the wrong results, um, it's unacceptable to have them published. The, those studies won't be accepted. Um, sometimes a study will get through because the results are like in the conclusion reported differently than what they actually are in the study. And sometimes it'll pass through, but if they figure it out, they'll yank it later. Um, and so so science has been muzzled now at this point. And you know, scientific inquiry no longer exists, free scientific inquiry. All you have is focused scientific inquiry, which will you know strengthen the prevailing narrative. Let's go back to this kid, Maddie, who's now, you know, she had all those symptoms and she's now on a feeding too. Is is she is there anything that can be done for her? I've actually been trying to reach out to her through different routes, you know, um, people who know her and her mother and offering, you know, to just actually, I don't even want to charge them. I just want to try helping her. And I actually offered to pay for the treatments that I recommended. Wow. Like, oh, really? I will buy the medicine for you. I will pay for everything that I recommend that you do and not charge you just to see what happens. And so maybe she's already tried a lot of these things with somebody else. I I know that she, I think she was connected with Sabine Hazan, who's also treating COVID patients and trying to fix their gut as well. Um, You know, because she's a very focused on gut health. Um, 
And so it may be possible for her to recover fully. And unfortunately, it may not be possible if she had, you know, micro strokes or strokes in different parts of her body that killed, you know, you know, things, you know, short of like some breakthrough in stem cell, you know, research where we can actually start regrowing dead nerves. Some people who have, you know, a severe enough reaction may not be able to get better. So I can't guarantee that everyone with long COVID or with vaccine injuries will recover because you can see that some people die, right? There's no coming yeah, back from yeah. that. And so there's a spectrum from mild to death. Well, and what is it that getting, you wanted to do for her? I mean, it's the same approach for everyone, right? It's yeah, ivermectin, ivermectin and in-cell yeah. DX testing and you know steroids and fluvoxamine and Mravirock maybe, and maybe Paxlovid or some other protease inhibitor. You know, you, you just go down the line of all those things. You know, she's had this problem for like a long time now, over a year. And so you try different things. There's no rush. You try this, you try that, you try blood thinners. Some people I throw like, you know, you give them blood thinners, they get a little bit better. You give them another blood thinner, a third blood thinner, like you, you'll give them aspirin and Plavix and Eliquis and like all these blood thinners work in different ways. And some people will be like, you know, the only thing that's helping me is all those three together. Right. And I don't know, it's microclotting, continuous, persistent microclotting that continues to happen. Maybe you're preventing that, you're holding that back. Um, but at the end of the day, you wanna kind of, the, the, ba the basic approach is to prevent, it's just to stop the inflammation so that the immune system can normalize itself, like reset, and then the immune system can do its job of getting rid of the spike protein, okay? That's what the, a normal immune system would do. The only reason it's not doing that is because it's an abnormal immune system, and that abnormality is triggered by the spike protein itself. So it's this vicious cycle. Spike protein causes an abnormal immune system. Abnormal immune system prevents spike protein from being you know, gotten rid of, spike protein causes abnormal immune system, abnormal immune system prevents spike protein from being gotten rid of. So it's a vicious cycle. If you can cut that cycle short by, by forcing the immune system to normalize with these medications, then you've got normal immune system gets rid of spike protein. Now there's nothing to trigger abnormal immune system anymore. So that, that to me seems to be the basic solution for people who have not sustained an irreparable injury. So like I said, the, the spectrum goes from very mild injury to severe injury to death. So the closer you get on the spectrum to the death point, like the more likely you are to have an injury that was like something you can't recover from, like a, a death of a certain part of you, right? You can kill the whole organism or you can kill parts of the organism. There's no coming back from death, right? So if you, if parts of your brain die, you know, as far as we know, brain cells don't really regenerate. I mean, maybe you can say like, they do in some cases and they reroute, and they reroute. So, so it's mostly rerouting, right? And, and so you kill the brain, you kill the heart, you kill a portion of the heart. There's like it's scarring. There's not regeneration typically, right? You have a scar, which is dead tissue. It's dead. And then, then it's scarred over. And so you, you cut your arm, right? It's not gonna, ever going to be the same. Right. There's right, going to be a right, scar right. usually. Right. Unless you're a baby, unless you have great stem cells, unless, you know, you join it together perfectly. You know, there are things you can do to minimize the damage and, and the death and the scarring. But some people, unfortunately, I mean, if you come to a person, you know, three years after a heart attack, there's no fixing that scar. The scar is there. And unless I like I said, unless there's a breakthrough in stem cells, you know, therapy, which we don't have yet. We're not at that point. I've also heard that the vaccines affect the thyroid yeah. and, you know, give them Hashimoto's or whatever. Is that fixable? 
So Hashimoto's has been around for a long time and, and the thyroid is a weak link for a lot of people, especially women. And a lot of people are just like one little, you know, injury away from a thyroid problem. Okay. Oh, like wow. a lot of people have an undiagnosed thyroid problem and a lot of other people are, you just have to like tip them over to enter Why them into a thyroid that? problem. Why are women so uh, delicate there? I don't know. That just seems to be a weak link in the in human beings in general who are in this environment that we're in in the modern world. Okay. okay. So there's something about the modern world that is triggering thyroid disorders in a lot of people, men and women, but primarily women. And Hashimoto's is one of the biggest ones. And, and so it's not unusual that um, some kind of generic insult that causes inflammation of the body would be triggering thyroid disorders because they're just present or like just beneath the surface in so many different people in the population to begin with. Um, another thing that's linked to thyroid is hair loss. So that might be kind of the root cause of a lot of the hair loss coming from the injections. That's another big reported, you know, symptom, yes. um, or it might be unrelated, but thyroid, you know, can affect your hair. And, um, and so Hashimoto's is reversible. You know, it's it's an autoimmune attack on the thyroid, essentially, is what Hashimoto's is. And so, again, okay, so one connection you can make with the injections is that they ramp up your immune system in general. So if your immune system is, you know, triggered in general, you're more likely to develop an autoimmune illness where your body is just attacking itself, not attacking the, the cells that are making the spike protein, but just attacking other cells, you know, random cells that have certain... Um, antigens, as we call them. So like certain little bits that the immune system suddenly becomes hyper aware of and is like, oh, this, you know, we have to attack this. It doesn't seem normal to us, even though it is normal because it's part of you. Um, so so what happens when you give an injection of any vaccine, they have, they add adjuvants to it to like trigger your immune system to have a really strong response to what's in the vaccine. So that really strong response can, has a broad-based effect on your entire immune system. It doesn't, it's not like, it's not specific to the antigen you're injecting them with in the vaccine, which is one of the, the reasons that people think vaccines in general are triggering, are triggering autoimmune disease because every vaccine has these non-specific adjuvants that have a non-specific, you know, riling up effect, you know, on your immune system, getting it riled up and angry. And so like more sensitive to things that it shouldn't be sensitive to. Right. So it's kind of like a hyperactive person or a hyper reactive person. Right. You just like you put you, you say something that normally shouldn't trigger anyone to get angry, but this hyperactive person just gets angry at anything. At the drop of a hat, they'll just explode. So that's the immune system you're creating in people who are vaccinated with any vaccine. Some people, it may not be that big of a deal because their immune system tends to be pretty relaxed and laid back to begin with, right? It's like a California surfer immune system. Whereas other people have a normal, you know, you know, a normal immune system and then you give them this adjuvant and it gets riled up and it's like really angry and it's always angry from then on out. Well, yeah, because kids have to take those things. A lot of them. From yeah. zero to 18 years old. I mean, it's and, crazy. And a lot of them. Yeah. So so this is, you know, a lot of people have made this connection that autoimmune disease is rising because of vaccinations. And you know, one of the most common ones is Hashimoto's thyroiditis, which is an autoimmune disease, but there's a whole lot of other ones, but that seems to be the most common. Is there some way to get rid of it or you just have to treat it forever? You can go to thyroidpharmacist.com. Um, she's, uh, I think her name is Isabella Wentz and she's a pharmacist who's written about like, um, basically functional medicine, you know, lifestyle changes and supplements and things that can calm down the immune system and the hyperinflamed thyroid and help you normalize it. Um, sometimes it's kind of easy and sometimes it's hard. 
But with the vaccine injuries and long COVID, if the underlying trigger is the spike protein and we remove the spike protein from your body, that trigger's gone, maybe it'll normalize itself, right? In some cases, like the vaccine injuries triggers like diabetes or the Hashimoto's thyroiditis, and you get rid of the vaccine injury, get rid of the trigger, and you still have diabetes, you still have Hashimoto's thyroiditis, then you have to like deal with them specifically because once you get a disease rolling, sometimes it's hard to like stop it, even if you've gotten rid of the initial trigger. So, so sometimes it just develops its own momentum and then you have to specifically address it. And so if that's the case, like, so the first step for all my patients is let's remove the initial trigger. And for most people, they'll normalize after that. Their body will eventually kind of go back to normal. All the downstream effects will get removed. Um, and, but for some percentage of people, removing the trigger helps a lot, but it doesn't remove every downstream effect. They'll still be left with new diseases that were kind of born from that trigger, but then have developed, you know, they gotten large enough and big enough and grown up enough that they have their own momentum and it's hard to stop them unless you specifically address them now. Is your guy, your high powered athlete, is he ever going to be able to run without jacking up his heart rate unnaturally? I think there's a good chance. Yeah. So like the, the present, his presentation to me doesn't suggest, you know, irreversible illness or like, you know, clots or something, you know, like a stroke or a heart attack or something that's like difficult to reverse. Um, so I'm very hopeful for him that we'll, it's just inflammation, chronic ongoing inflammation. And once we stop the inflammation, the body will get, be able to get rid of the spike protein. And if he has trouble after all of that, you know, we'll try to, we'll, we'll assume that maybe there's active virus and we'll try to kill that virus, whatever it takes. And so, yeah, most people with the, that kind of presentation, you know, where they're not, like in a wheelchair, like Maddie DeGray, she's lost the use of her legs. She's lost the use of her ability to swallow. She's being yeah. fed through tubes. Um, so this is, um, those kind of symptoms suggest more like, you know, permanent loss of function from like loss, like death of nerves, you know? And so it's unfortunate. It, I wouldn't write her off either though, because it, it is still possible that it's not permanent loss of function due to death of nerves. It's permanent inflammation, just severe inflammation causing those nerves to not function properly or be very, very dysfunctional. And maybe if you removed it and this, you know, the swelling went away and the inflammation went away, maybe they would be able to normalize again. Um, or at least, you know, I think regardless of whether there is some aspect of irreversibility or, you know, permanent damage, there are a lot of other aspects that can be reversed, right? So I don't think I would be, you know, I don't think everything that's affecting her is irreversible, you know, but I, no one can guarantee that everything is reversible either. What about myocarditis? I mean, what's the best that a myocarditis victim can hope for? Because that's a, that's a big one. That, yeah. Myocarditis can kill heart cells, unfortunately. Um, so, so you may be left with some decrease in your functional capacity and your heart's, you know, in the amount of heart muscle that there is. And this is, you know, the stronger you are to begin with, the more, you know, insult you can take and the more damage you can take without um, being left in a diseased state. So the idea here is that everyone has uh, some like organ reserve capacity um, in their bodies. So the healthier you are, the 
greater your organ reserves. So, you know, if you're very healthy, you can remove half your liver or 90% of your liver and still function normally. And so you don't enter a disease state by having 10% liver left, you know, and almost everyone can remove an entire kidney. So 50% of your kidney capacity can be removed and you still function normally, right? Um, so you can lose a lot of, you know, some people can lose some heart capacity and still function normally and they can push themselves really, really hard and not feel any problems. Whereas other people will lose, you know, other people, if you have a diseased kidney system to begin with, you can't really lose a kidney without being severely affected because you already have chronic kidney disease. So, so everyone is somewhere on the spectrum, uh, you know, from like, you know, super healthy to like, you know, headed towards disease in this world that we live in, you know, where unexpected things can affect you and spread through the environment to you, you need to try to be as healthy and strong as possible to begin with. So that if you get struck down by something, you won't be, you know, as affected as somebody else who is starting from a much lower baseline and has much less, you know, much less reserve. So you don't want to do things like smoking. You want to get rid of being, you know, if you're overweight, get rid of that. Um, like, being overweight, one of the reasons it's such a big problem is that your lungs can't fully expand, right? <laughs> because they come, they go down and they hit your belly, right? So you can't take a full breath. And so your lungs are never fully expanding. So, so that's one of the reasons that people who are overweight uh, do much worse with like pneumonia and just any kind of illness, right? Like your heart starts beating faster when you're sick. And if you're overweight, there's just like, not you know, it's already beating harder and faster to to send blood to all the you know all the bigger body that you already have so you need to start off like carrying less of a load to begin right, with so right. that if a load is added to you you can sustain it what about weak muscles or what's it called polymyositis, polymyositis yeah. yeah what about that that seems to be kind of a common uh yeah, generalized yeah. weakness is very, very common with vaccine injuries. Is that fixable? Yeah. So in general, that's that's just an inflammatory thing. So it's uh, muscular inflammation everywhere, and it's probably affecting the nerves and the muscles, you know, some combination of both, but it doesn't seem to be irreversible, no. You would use the same treatment, you know, the ivermectin, et cetera. The only times you choose specific treatments are like sometimes somebody comes to you and they're like, I, I have a lot of neurological symptoms and I just want to like try something um, specific right away. I'm, I'm, I'm not, I don't want to try ivermectin and then steroids and then fluvoxamine. So fluvoxamine um, enters the central nervous system, whereas ivermectin does not. Um, but I would say like even people who have central nervous like brain oriented symptoms that seem to be stemming from the brain, um, a lot of times it's inflammation, peripheral inflammation entering the brain. And it's not like the thing is actually in the brain. Like the spike protein may not actually be in your brain. It may be, it may not be. Um, with vaccine injuries, it's more likely to be than with COVID. It's very unlikely to be with long COVID. But if somebody comes and says, what might help the best with neurological symptoms, I would probably say fluvoxamine or Prozac. You know, those have more specific neurological um, targets. Um, and if somebody comes with an incel DX test from covidlonghaulers.com and you see certain specific inflammatory markers elevated, you might say like, yeah, Maraviroc will help decrease CCR5 and ivermectin will help decrease IL interleukin-6 and aspirin or Plavix will help you decrease this SCD40L. And so then you can kind of target the therapy um, in certain directions. Well, that testing. test sounds like it's important for people who've had adverse reactions. At this point, honestly, everyone in America should have this test. Okay, I mean, the company wouldn't be able to support that, but um, even people who think that they're totally fine after a vaccine, 
should have that test because you can have chronic inflammation setting you up for chronic disease in the future without knowing it, right? So you can have high blood pressure right now that causes a heart attack 20 years in the future, but you feel totally normal right now, right? So the same with the vaccine, you could have this chronic inflammation in your body from the injection that is going to turn into cancer in three years or turn into a heart attack in five years or turn into you know dementia in 10 or 20 years, right? If you deal with it now, if you fix it, even though you can't feel anything right now, if you test it and find out that there is that inflammation, you take the meds, you get rid of the inflammation, you check for the spike protein, you get rid of the spike protein. If you do all of that, you may you know, prevent yourself from the fu- in, in the future having those diseases. Along with everything we've discussed, is there any kind of a detox regimen that you would recommend? Yeah, so there's different levels of detox. And so the, the ultimate would be what I just said. Um, you go all the way in. You, 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 know, you put in all your chips and you're saying, like, I'm all in on this. I'm going to do supplements, all the supplements. I'm going to you know, clean up my lifestyle. I'm going to get healthy. I'm going to get rid of you know, junk food. For a time, I'm going to go low histamine. And then after that, I'm going to avoid you know, junk food for the rest of my life. Um, and I'm going to take these medications. I'm going to do the testing. I'm going to figure out if I have the inflammation. I'm going to take the meds to get rid of the inflammation. I'm going to get rid of the spike protein. Um, and so, you know, just a general healthy lifestyle. And then the focused interventions around, you know, supplements and medications. And then the testing to kind of go back and just double check, are you done with it or not? And then any symptoms, right, that come up, you want to, you know, address those. So, so that's basically all we have at our disposal is, you know, lifestyle change, supplementation, and then medications. And one thing that I haven't mentioned yet that I've also heard um, is very helpful is one um, one 30-minute therapy with a stem cell infusion. So I don't know all the details of this, but the doctor told me that he's seen tremendous, you know, tremendously beneficial results with a 30-minute mesenchymal stem cell infusion. He's a rheumatologist who spoke to Steve Kirsch and um, I'll be able to find his name. I'll ferret it okay. out. Okay. All right. All uh, right. But so he, he's actually in a trial for this stem cell therapy. Um, and he's, he's part of a trial and it's actually, they've completed their uh, data, you know, anal- um, you know, analysis and they're about to publish apparently in the next few weeks. So we should have some indication whether that's actually helpful or whether it's just a placebo effect soon. Um, But I did, you know, I've gotten in touch with uh, some stem cell centers and they have told me that their long COVID patients are improving. And so stem cells, you know, they don't work for everything, right? And it depends on the kind of stem cell and there's a lot of different, you know, variables with stem cell therapy. But I think what they're doing is they're they're taking stem cells from your own body and they are kind of concentrating them and then they're reinfusing them into your bloodstream. That seems to be beneficial based on this, you know, reporting from this physician. So the, the place to look into this would be your local stem cell clinic or, or the nearest stem cell clinic you can find and ask that, or whichever stem cell clinic you can find that's had experience with long callers or COVID vaccine injured patients. I keep coming back to this. This is essentially the same disease, right? So people who are listening to this who have long COVID and people who are listening to this who have vaccine injury, it's basically the same approach for both. I mean, there's, it's kind of like different flavors of the same thing. I mean, they're very, very closely related. I so much appreciate the work that you're doing. And I think it, this, this program is going to help a lot of people who feel helpless right now. 
It's my pleasure. Um, I just want to let people know if they need help, you know, go to covidlonghaulers.com, go to mygotodoc.com um, for like prescriptions and things. And then for supplement, you know, that supplement that I mentioned earlier is mygotostack.com. Um, and, and the nice thing at mygotodoc, you can actually register for free and ask questions. If you just want to ask questions and get some information, you can get all that for free and we'll respond to you and reply to you and, and answer all your questions. Uh, you can So basically you can register for free and just ask questions. Um, and there's a, there's a free ebook on long co on COVID related stuff. So whether it's preventing COVID or treating COVID or treating long COVID slash vaccine injuries, again, I may not have mentioned specifically vaccine injuries in there, but it's, again, it's the same thing as long COVID. So you just look at the long COVID section and, and that's how you treat it with supplements and things, uh, you know, over the counter. So those, those are some resources that people can, can look at. Thank you so much. You're welcome.